0: Now let's get into this week's show.
1: what is going on everybody welcome back to another episode of the wisconsin sportsman podcast which is brought to you by tacticam i'm your host pierce nellis and this week i'm flying without mr josh raley as he is out doing some consulting but i'm not alone because i had a chance to sit down with none other than jacob splenner from the wild calling outdoors to talk about his 2023 season Jacob came on and did an episode with Josh back in June titled Up Your Map Scouting Game for Big Bucks with Jacob Sklenner that took a deep dive into Jacob's approach to preseason scouting and how he reads deer sign. In our conversation today, we hear all about how the knowledge he gained from his time spent scouting translated to not one, not two, but three bucks hitting the ground across multiple states, including his biggest buck to date, which came from our great state of Wisconsin. I know we say this about a lot of our guests, but Jacob truly is a salt of the earth kind of guy who likes doing hard stuff and doing it the right way. He's a Wisconsin native and former college wrestler, and we even talked about some of the ways that hunting has kind of filled a void for us after our collegiate athletic careers ended and how we've used lessons learned from sports to help us mentally prepare for hunts. We also talk about filming hunts, buck betting, and constantly testing hypotheses while in the woods. All of that is, on, of course, on top of the stories of how he killed all of his deer this season, which, luckily, you can go watch on his YouTube channel, The Wild Calling. I'm super appreciative of Jacob for spending some time with me to record this episode. This is my first time actually getting to talk to him in real time, and he's just flat out a great dude, and I think you'll all hear that in today's episode. But first, I'd be in trouble if I forgot to mention one of our great sponsors, Revo Sunglasses. You guys, if you haven't already, you need to go and check out Revo Sunglasses. They started off as my go-to glasses for fishing, whether I'm guiding or fishing for pleasure, but they're really good for so much more. Over Thanksgiving, I even wore mine duck hunting to cut down on glare and see what was walking what I was walking around in the marshes. But these guys seriously have a lens and a frame for any occasion, whether you're on the water or on the patio. And you can even get 30% off your order with code WisconsinSportsman30 at checkout. So be sure to go and check those guys out at Revo.com. Lastly, many of you know that I'm an independent fly fishing guide over in the Driftless region. And if you don't know that, you certainly know that the holidays are right around the corner. And what better gift to give a uh, loved one than time spent together in nature. For the first time ever, I'm now offering gift cards for the holidays where you can give your loved one the gift of a full day or a half day guide trip, or even just a casting lesson if you'd like to just give it a try. If this sounds like something you or a loved one would be interested in, you can find more info for that at goodchanceflyfishing.com or get in touch with me at goodchanceflyfishing on Instagram. Now, without further ado, let's get on to our episode with Mr. Jacob sklenner all right, joining me for this week's episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, I've got a repeat guest um, who happens to be killing some pretty darn big deer this year, Mr. Jacob Sclenor. <laughs> Jacob, how you doing?
2: I'm doing fantastic, man. Really, really happy to be on, get down and talk to you about all this stuff.
1: Likewise, man. Dude, this has been an episode that I've been pumped for for a while. Really, honestly, since you came on with Josh back in June and just talked through your whole um, uh, your, your your map scouting game and everything for folks if you haven't heard that episode is from june 27th titled up your map scouting game for big bucks with jacob splinter uh man you drop a ton of knowledge in that one holy smokes like that i that was one that josh texted me right after you guys got done recording and was like dude you need to go listen to this like i'm sending you the audio file before it's out like my mind is blown um (laughs) Dude, so I'm going to awesome. do my best not to uh, not not to repeat on that too much here, but man, where to begin? I, I guess first off for those for those of us who haven't, uh, or for those of you who haven't heard that episode, could you tell us a bit about yourself, um, sort of your background? You've got your hands kind of in you know a couple of different baskets. Uh, why don't you tell mm-hmm. us about yourself here, Jacob?
2: Yeah, so so to give a, a brief introduction, um, I. Uh, I'm a resident of Wisconsin, I I grew up in southeastern Wisconsin, and I didn't really start bow hunting until right around college when I moved away from the area, actually. But all throughout my youth, um, I gun hunted way up in northern Wisconsin. Our family, long short, didn't have a lot of success, didn't really know what we were doing. I always found a way to kill something, nothing of real class, you know, and um, eventually I was kind of sick of only hunting seven out of the nine days of gun season every year. Cause I loved hunting so much. And I was like, man, I, I just wish I could do this more. And my dad's like, you know, you can bow hunt. Right. And I was like, I can do that. Like, he, like I can just go do that. I was like, I don't know. I was like 17, 18 years old. And I was like, I'm fine. Just leaving with my bow after school and like going out. He's like, yeah, do it. And I was like, Oh, perfect. <laughs> so I, I started getting into it. And then um I had a, I really had, I haven't talked about this a whole lot, but I had a bunch of these occurrences where I was sitting over a CRP field and I had like this basket eight or basket six that would come out 150 yards from me. And like three nights in a row, I was like desperation grunt at this deer. And I was like, I'm on him, I'm on him. But I was so pissed that I couldn't just like kill him, you know? And I had no idea what to do about it. You know, I'm just sitting in a climber and stuff. And, and, um, eventually my dad's like, well, you should watch these DVDs. And it was the Blood Brothers DVDs, and that's kind of how I found them. Um, and so I I watched those. I started diving into that, and soon enough, it was time for me to go off to college, and uh, I left for southwestern Wisconsin, UW-Platteville, completely changed terrain types, where before I was kind of hunting a bit of ag. Now I'd be hunting steep bluff hill country in, in southwestern Wisconsin, and uh, I wrestled throughout my youth. And I wrestled throughout high school. I did well enough that I was going to wrestle in college there. And I decided I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. So I was going to get a mechanical engineering degree. And uh, the wrestling had taught me to work extremely hard. Uh, I'd gotten to go to Askin Wrestling Academy with Ben Askren, Max Askren, several Olympian level wrestlers. And, and learn how to work hard and work technically very smart. Um, and that delved right into engineering. It was, it was being inventive, analyzing the data you have, making it work for you and just combining those approaches of working smarter and harder. I like to say is what I've brought into my whitetail game and has helped me out a lot. So starting with that clean slate in Southwestern Wisconsin, um, I've said in the past, I killed, um, in my five seasons there, I killed four bucks on four different properties, which is true, but I actually, I always like write off gun season because like, I just, for me, it's a completely different game than bow season, but I actually mm-hmm. killed a few bucks during Guns, so it's it's really more than that. But, um, yeah, I, I killed a really nice one there on public land, and that's how I started getting uh, acquainted with Dan Infault and, and put out a film on that and have made uh, quite a few films for him since then. And, um, yeah, just through his mentorship and, and a lot of things I've read online, listening to podcasts 24-7, like I'm sure a lot of these viewers are right now on that kind of binge, um, I learned a lot. And and the way I learned was to take anything that I could find that I thought was reputable and test it out. I was never just believing anyone because kind of the method I went through is very similar to what they, they taught me in school is that you don't just seek to be right. You don't try a theory and hope it's right. You try a theory and hope it's wrong. And if you cannot make it wrong, then it has to be true. It has to work. Right. And so, if it's applying in, these, in the situation I'm in, I, I learned to employ it. And I learned to get not just really good at using those skills, but what's really up my game is re- getting really good at learning what works very quickly, getting really good at understanding the situation I'm in. And, um, you know, I'm no expert at any of this, but um, that's kind of what's worked for me a whole lot. And so this past year, I moved back to southeastern Wisconsin and now I have a place back here again. And I've learned to apply those skills that I learned in Hill Country and just the method of of acquiring information and making it work for me to the marshes, and happened to find some good success this year in three bucks in three different states, and most proud of the one in Wisconsin, that's for sure. But yeah, it was a lucky, fun season.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> man, dude. You, I mean, no pun intended. You've been killing it this season, just from. From what i've been following along with so far um so you mentioned you, you got started there with dan infall um you know filming some some content for him when did you start filming was that like kind of a college you know hobby that came along or did you have you done that prior
2: yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna shout out my buddy alex because he's gonna he's gonna love this i'm gonna embarrass him a little bit too um but uh i was i was assigned a random roommate that was also a wrestler in in college and i <laughs> he was sitting on the couch when we first came into the room in this tiny little dorm and um my dad like pulled him to the side and he's like hey you better hug your parents because you are never going to be the same and that's like the first thing he said to him <laughs> basically this kid alex liked fishing um and i was obsessed with everything the outdoors fishing and hunting mm-hmm. and i completely corrupted him into getting <laughs> into hunting and fishing and um and it, within the first month of being in college, he had taken his hunter safety and bought a, I appreciate sure bought a gun or found one from one of his relatives to, to use and was like, just gearing up to do everything he could in the outdoors. Um, so I'll take full credit for all his success here on out, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, so he made these goofy little vlogs and I was like, man, this random guy, he's such a nerd. Cause like, I didn't know him. He didn't have any kind of social media that I could find. He just had these little vlogs on YouTube. Mm-hmm. shout out Struder blogs, but he, uh, he made these goofy little videos and I thought he was, I, th- I really thought he was a dork at first and he is, but I love him. Um, and, uh, and so he would make these little things just for fun, you know, just, just things with friends. And I was like, you know, we should just, he, I think he kind of brought it up. He's like, we should just film some of this outdoor stuff you, just post it, edit it up. Like, just be cool. You know, like we're not trying to go viral or anything. It's a good way to share memories and tell our family, like show our family what we're up to. So we made a bunch of videos and stuff like that and like took me like three months to get over interviewing myself. I just hated it. Um, mm-hmm. But eventually like got into it and I, I started to enjoy it. So it's like, Oh, I'm just going to sharp on Mark shop on marketplace, get a cheap little Canon Vixia or, you know, whatever I can get and start filming with it. And uh, so I did that and, and um, was, really excited about the filming and stuff. And obviously following Dan, I was like, man, I kind of want to film my hunts. You know, it would be really cool to do that and then just learn from them. And eventually I got on this mission to kill my first mature buck ever on public land and um, and was adamant that it had to happen on public just because it was a whole wrestling mentality of just challenging yourself the hardest you can and, and being in search of becoming the person that can achieve that more in, in chase of being that quality of person that you want to achieve like that would achieve that goal, not necessarily about the goal, but, but just being as good as you can at something. And, um, and eventually it worked out and uh, it was a very memorable hunt, great time. And I reached out to Dan and just told him how thankful I was for everything. I told him I got it on film. Um, and um, he said, that's cool. And then a couple months later I contacted him and I said like, you know, I really want to do this. Like, like, I just want to do this. And, and I, I've never been this obsessed about anything like this. I was like, what is some advice you can give me? Like what sets other people apart? And he just said that passion and that drive is, and being unique is first and foremost. And uh, eventually he was like, you know, if you got all that all film, you could come over, like, you show me the film and we can make a video out of it. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> like, like he was my hero in hunting. And it was like, absolutely. So we had a little interview about it. The footage was pretty good. It's very, very nice book uh, for especially a first mature book on public man is very nice one. And, um, yeah. And, it, and he liked the footage and we made a really cool, memorable film about it, kind of hit it off when we did the interview process. And, and it was really just a blast and that's kind of rest is history. That's awesome, man. And so you've been, what
1: year was that in that that started or you started working with Dan?
2: That was, um, uh, I want to say it was twenty twenty the summer of okay summer of twenty twenty or summer twenty nineteen I can't quite remember but it was a while back it, it's been sure I think it's been four seasons now gotcha I've been, been doing stuff with Dan absolutely fantastic um
1: so I mean we're gonna drive right into your whole season here i mean that's why that's why we got you on right now is we, we got to hear about this this absolute slammer that you put down a couple weeks ago <laughs> it's almost a month ago man i can't believe that i was just looking at the calendar today yeah, and i was like you said you killed that thing on the 10th like what the hell i was in i was in an
2: odd position where i had i had we'll get into this but i killed in ohio It came back and i needed to do a lot of work to kill one in wisconsin mm-hmm. and um i ended up being like well i'm not gonna edit the ohio video until I get one done in Wisconsin because I'm a hundred before editor and, uh, fortunately got it done fairly quickly afterward. But then I had the whole Ohio video to edit and the whole mm-hmm. Wisconsin video to edit. So it was a lot of time. <laughs> and right. I spent and those 50, were your 50 to second, 60 hours
1: for edit. Holy smokes. Really?
2: Yeah. I don't have the best software in the world, but I, I have a lot of footage to go through and then I just, I work super hard on them. Cause it's mm-hmm. just like, my goal is to just convey the emotion like okay. through the video and then show the in a quick entertaining video, you know, I can make them two hours long, no problem. But in a quick entertaining video, kind of bring the the listener along on on my journey and, and make them feel some of what I felt, you know? And I, I think the videos that did that best was the, the final episode of the Nebraska series. I think that did that pretty well. Um, but I also think this Wisconsin video is the best video I've made yet. So I, yeah. I, I'm fairly confident. Yeah, dude. I, I
1: mean, I would say, well, I guess first and foremost here, where can folks find your your content cuz you have a youtube oh. channel
2: yeah yeah um the wild calling is my youtube channel and um yeah so the wild calling is the youtube wild calling outdoors on instagram and the wild calling on facebook basically instagram and facebook i'm going to give you little teasers and and let you know when videos are up and stuff like that um uh, but the bulk of the the cool action is going to happen on that that youtube page and you're going to get see the the full length videos and all that
1: sure Absolutely. Well, yeah, dude, I mean, just watching some of those videos that uh, you've put out so far this season, I would say you're definitely doing a heck of a job uh, (laughs) capturing that story. And I mean, you're just bringing people along with it in a, and like you said, a concise manner that still is holding people's Mm -hmm. attention, which is seemingly getting shorter and shorter
2: uh, all the time. It's so bad (laughs) nowadays. It's
1: these damn phones, man. Um, Right. (laughs) But so anyways, where does the season start for you? I know that you're a, you're a preseason scouter. Um, so, I mean, does this, I guess I want to touch briefly on your, on your two deer prior to this Wisconsin buck, um, your Nebraska Mm -hmm. and your Ohio deer. Um, I guess let's start there and then we'll rewind if need be to the scouting leading up into this Wisconsin hunt.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the way the season kind of started, uh, going past the, the scouting was quickly, I got invited to Nebraska kind of like, wasn't really last second of notice. It was maybe a week or two weeks or three weeks in advance. So, you know, usually I like to plan stuff a little more advanced, but mm-hmm. Dan likes to ride by the seat of his pants. So <laughs> I could not say yes, you know, fast enough to Dan <laughs> and I, uh, all, before I knew it, I was racing out to Nebraska and, um. I I had to experiment around, this is my first whitetail out of state hunt and uh, I had to experiment around with things that I thought were going to work out. I, through testing my, like I said, like through testing some of the strategies and and being open to realizing that I was wrong, um, I I found that a lot of my initial thoughts on Nebraska were misconceptions. I thought the pressure was going to be much higher. It was extremely low for what I've experienced uh, here in Wisconsin. Um, I thought that the deer density was going to be a little bit higher. And in some cases that was false. Um, I thought there was going to be smaller deer that I ended up encountering and I found a lot bigger deer. And then, um, I thought it was all going to be sand hills and there's a lot of other territory also covered too. So uh, it was really, really interesting. Um, and so I had to make a lot of adaptations uh, on the hoof, if you will. And, Mm -hmm. um, and eventually, uh, found some success and, uh, just a, a story full of adversity. Really, I I uh, had a shot at, I basically had, was at full draw three times. Um, one of them on what would be my biggest buck ever at four yards. Um, and I won't spoil that one, but eventually got it done on a spot and stalk hunt. And it was, it was just a blast. It was really cool to, on, on a first out of state hunt, be on multiple big mature animals. Um, to learn so much was just, amazing to me. I love learning about these deer and, and how they act in different environments. And, uh, that was the, the best part of it. And then, you know, having a tag punch leading into the Wisconsin season was just great. Like that was so, such a relief because, because I felt like, okay, venison's in the freezer. Like, you know, I got a year amount that I can make and, and I, I don't need to kill the first eight or better that I see this year, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Totally. Yeah, Josh and I talk about that all the time. About just the 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 weight off your shoulders when you're able to, even if it's just smacking a doe or something, you know, yep. the first couple of weeks yep. of the season, just having the the meat monkey off your back so that you can focus on, you know, hunting the deer that you want to hunt. Um, but that, that's fascinating what you you mentioned there about all the different you know kind of misconce- or misconceptions that you had um, going into Nebraska, pr- particularly. Um, I, I guess what one question that I have going off of that is like what were the the main kind of surprises I guess and was it in the way of mm-hmm. finding deer or like where they were located or was it uh, I, I guess uh, what similarities yeah. and what differences did you did you find between there and, and Wisconsin
2: yeah so so it, it depends on the terrain type that I was covering because I found I, I had different assumptions depending on what terrain I was hunting but the number one um, uh, the, the first property started off on, um, I expected their I expected shade to be a huge thing. Cause it was a hundred, 102 degrees on average every day. Jeez. It got up to like 112 or something like that. Um, and I was doing for the first couple of days in my scouting days, I was doing like eight miles a day. Like I was going crazy <laughs> r- running around and stuff and it wasn't healthy, but, um, and One so I, I thought the whole day, <laughs> Oh, geez, it, I got in some sketchy situations, not lie, <laughs> but, but, um, so I, You know, I was running and gunning it quite a bit and I was expecting these slopes that were um, southwest facing to kind of be, or northwest facing to kind of be the key, the most shaded slopes, you know, I thought were going to be the cooler areas. And that was true. And deer were frequenting those areas. But there was many more coniferous trees than I had planned, and there was ever shade everywhere. It gave them so many options. Sure. The next thing I thought is if I can find oaks in a place that's really rare for oaks to be, the deer are obviously could be eating those oaks. So I found bur oaks and white oaks dropping, and the deer were not eating them for whatever reason. Like I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't. I could not figure out why I wasn't seeing deer eating fresh dropping white oaks, especially in an area where there's not much else for our typical browse elsewhere so I was like I didn't I just didn't know and and there wasn't much deer density where I was at I was trying and trying to to you know I was trying to even bump a deer to just figure out what situation it was bedding in and I would go through all these areas that like were prime with white oaks and close water sources and a great cool thermal draw and worked good for leeward winds and all that and it just wasn't adding up and the deer weren't there and Uh, I decided I needed to make a drastic change. So I made some shifts. Um, I did a lot more glassing than I originally expected to do in those areas. Um, I started getting on deer in cool river bottoms Um, that expanded it a lot. I got my first opportunity exiting a hunt from there, kind of just stalking my way out. Um, And then I eventually found property that had marshes. And I found that the way they bedded in the marshes in these very low pressure areas, um, and, and to some people from out of state this may be a high pressure area to you but comparatively to the crazy amount of stuff that's going on here in Wisconsin um, it, it was very low pressure to me but they were betting on the most obvious spots I I could think of you know like giant isolated trees in the middle of marshes or on the edges of marshes and that and, and just alighting quite a bit and, and that's just not what you would catch a deer doing in deer season here. Cause like mm-hmm. all those isolated trees are just glaringly obvious from a map. Right. And, um, the only reason I found out that a deer was actually doing that is cause I sat back in glass for a morning. I felt like I was just going to be sacrificing my whole morning to possibly learn something. And actually I ended up getting on the biggest deer of the trip, uh, doing that. And that's what initiated that stalk. Um, but yeah, it, it was just interesting cause it was, I made assumptions about the pressure. The amount of deer that i was going to see that they would be on oaks that they'd be associated to certain terrain features and stuff and i just slowly found out they weren't true but you know i could have just scouted and blindly hung a tree stand and trusted that little bit of scouting and that initial knowledge i had every time or i could sit back in glass or try to bump a deer and figure out actually what they're doing and actually mm-hmm. see a deer doing something and that was that turned out to be the right strategy because that worked time and time again out there ahead even after I had killed, I stayed to, to glass and help out and I off of a prediction located a really, really nice book after that. So, um, yeah, another, another one of those situations where like, you kind of got to just get over what you, what your initial perception is and what you may have been told and and figure it out for yourself in reality, what it is. Right. Absolutely.
1: Were you ever able to figure out what they were eating?
2: They ate all sorts of stuff. After I did expanded to another properties, they ate gold. I saw a eating goldenrod. I saw them eating wild sunflower. Um, hmm. and, and the property I shifted to had less oaks. Um, but I saw them eating pretty much anything green and white. I saw a buck eating willow, like like just willow branches Not or sure. willow leaves. Um, you know they were just browsing like crazy on anything green. But but mainly, it what I did see them eating was willow, sunflower, and goldenrod. Okay. Gotcha.
1: Gotcha. Interesting. And so that was, so that was early season, correct? hmm
2: And then I, I should correct too, at night they were traveling to a hayfield. Okay. But just gotcha. green, just like basically a long grass field is what it yep. looked like. Gotcha. Um, so that was their main nighttime browse, but it wasn't like I was going to kill them in a hayfield. You know, I was going to, and, and this was very open terrain, as you'll see in the videos I have from Nebraska. Um Yeah. I mean, they weren't going to get caught in the middle of a wide open area necessarily in daylight, or at least the class of animal that was trying to chase. Right. I I didn't expect to be given that. Right.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So, so you get a buck down in Nebraska, stay there, scout your butt off. What's the timeline next? Are you coming home and you're scouting Wisconsin? Are you getting ready just to head out to Ohio? How, how much time you got in between Nebraska and
2: Ohio? so nebraska cut off on i think i got back september 9th and then i had a week to wisconsin opener and then i was planning on going to ohio september 29th or october 29th is when i was planning to go to ohio okay. so i had a long time between between now and ohio and um you know i just kind of was i just did a lot of glassing uh to get into my wisconsin season um But yeah, at that point I had walked over 300 miles in Wisconsin just for this season's worth of scouting on many, many different properties, um, focusing on a few and you know, it's, it was well over 300 miles. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be quite frank, but I'm not going to tally up my miles. I'm just going to worry about the quality of scouting I'm doing. But, but almost every day after work, I was like racing out for a few hours. If I could, I would spend the entire weekend, um, with the exception of driving back home to sleep and waking up before sunlight and going back out, I would spend the entire days in the spring and summer out there. Didn't matter if it was 89 degree heat. Like I just want as much intel as I could. And um, that's what really set me up for success. It was like, all right, well, I was less daunted by this new terrain because I had just killed a deer off of essentially a marsh in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And I had gone into a situation that was so ridiculously foreign and succeeded. I was like, I've already put in so much scouting here. I know I have a good feel for what the deer are doing. I know I'm not an idiot. Like, I I will eventually figure this out. I can do it this season, and I already have a deer down. It's okay if it doesn't happen. Um, But honestly, going into the season in Wisconsin, I was thinking, like, it's my first year in the marshes, a new terrain type. It'd be cool to shoot a 125 or better or 130 or better. Like, that's what my goal had been in almost all the prior seasons. And um, that's what I went into the season feeling like. And then eventually, I think it was September 26th or 28th, I think it was the 28th, I got a picture of a giant six by six, you know, big 12-point buck, clean, typical buck. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Booner all the way on, on a chunk of public. And I was so excited. And, and I was like, never mind that whole 125 or better. <laughs> like, I'm going to chase this specific buck. Um, and that's why I had a huge mentality shift there and I spent a large portion of my season chasing this deer. Um, A lot of my sits where I gain most of my knowledge is is from my in-season scouting on the way into my sits and the way from my sits That aggregate knowledge as I get chasing specific deer um, or or bouncing around spots. That's where I really gained my kind of what's going on right now. How am I going to kill the buck right now? Intel. Um, And I had put it all forth, all, all towards this deer. Um, and, and I I was within range of them four times. Um, two of those times were after, were just, just after dark, um, and every single time I was set up in the absolute closest tree I could have possibly been in, and I should qualify that as literally the closest setup, because uh, this deer was often bedding in fragmites and not leaving cattails in daylight. There were several times that I watched him go to bed, and I watched him exit bed, and he did not touch cattails while, the, while there was, he did not touch any kind of land or leave himself from cattails while there was light. Um, really? so I would, yeah. And, and I got confirmation on this multiple times from cell cams and, and, uh, and SD cams. And you know, I, this deer taught me so much. It was such a rewarding experience. I, I just, I learned how useless cameras can be at times, mm-hmm. how he'll be in there and I'll see him and I'll have the sit of my life and there won't be any pictures at all. Sure. Like I learned how he actually adapted to avoid some of my cameras he would only cross in front of. A, the single cell cam I had in that area. Um, he would only cross in front of it when a subordinate buck was there and he wanted to chase out that buck. So he almost always had his ears pinned or was almost always following a doe or something like that. Uh, but I chased him for a long time and and I uh, got my closest attempt at him. I think it was October 25th. And um, I was sitting in a tree and uh i knew he was better than this patch of fragmites. that was away from me i i was very confident because he had done it the day before and so um i got set up in this patch of in this little piece of trees on the closest cover to those fragmites that i wouldn't be just standing at cattails in um i expected him to come my way i, I heard commotion from those fragmites before daylight and i was like all right he's he's gonna come or sorry i should say before dark i was like all right he's gonna come in and then um About five minutes before dark, I had someone exit down this access dike that was kind of close to me. And they were shining their headlamp in the marsh and stuff like that. And I was like, great, like my hut's over. That guy passes me, it fades to dark, and I I get down from my tree. And right when I'm wrapping up my last stick at the bottom of my tree, I can hear him coming through the cattails to me. Uh And my heart sank, so I got down in like a catcher's stance, like a squat, and I started recording on my phone i got a bunch of audio of this but um just i mean he walked up to three or four yards from me i could hear him like sniffing i could hear him crunching on leaves like it was just like crystal clear no, and i no, no. eventually was getting uncomfortable i shifted to my other foot and my thermal started to drift into those cattails a little bit as the sun was setting as the sun was set and um he smelled me and I got the audio of him spooking like right next to me and then blowing for like three minutes straight, just the deepest like uh-huh. most bone chilling blow Like you could hear the weight of his chest. Yeah, I've never heard anything like it, but it was really cool. I mean, I, I know it was him cause he was doing the exact same thing he did the day before, but he was just delayed by that guy. Damn. And, um, yeah, it was a real bummer. And, um, I delayed my trip to Ohio a few days because I had a couple days and I wanted to chase him more. And I wasn't wasn't able to relocate him. I had ended up targeting him on two different primary areas that were about 600 to 700 yards apart. And uh, I got within shooting range of him, both of those areas. And eventually I just couldn't get it done on him. And I was like, I'm not going to sacrifice my time in Ohio. I had the opportunity to have a camp with Jake Bush and that would be a blast to me. So I was like, I'm going to go out there hunt this new terrain, come back, refresh, you know, and um, went out to Ohio, had a blast. I ended up killing one there. And actually the day that I killed there was the day that he got shot back home. Oh. And um, yeah, so I was driving back home the day after I killed and my buddy sent me a, a Facebook post and he was like, dude, I think this is the buck you've been chasing. And I was like, yeah, that's him. And and I was absolutely extraordinarily depressed like like to to put my entire season all my all my coins into that shoe box basically uh, of that deer all the time i invested was was to him and um i'd done a couple sits off of them here and there but you know he was the one i was after and and i felt like i was at such a disadvantage coming back but then i was like like I just remember thinking, like, why do you feel so sorry for yourself? Like, this is never how you'd feel after a loss in wrestling. Like, this is never how you should feel. You should always just bounce back, bust your ass, go get it done. And I had four sits left, and then I I was on to, to my Wisconsin boat. Essentially, Absolutely.
1: So you mentioned that you were able to get back on that buck before he was killed and before you left to Ohio there. Um, <laughs> how did you end up tracking him down? Because he said he was six, 700 yards away from Was it from that bed or he showed up Mm -hmm. a couple you know at different locations aside from that bed that were 700 yards apart
2: yeah yeah so like to break down the specific occurrences um i had him within range one night um but i i just couldn't see him um and i had him actually chase a spike off of a doe and that's when i knew it was him and he he made this like really short like snort wee sound Mm -hmm. um it's kind of odd i'd never had experience with deer making particular sounds Um, but a big deer, my, my other friend was on, he would almost get, always get up from his bed and start me, and it was really, I was kind of calling BS on him, but then (laughs) I had this deer do that and chase a, a doe and spike off of, in front of my cell cam. And it was like, well, I came right from the bed. I expected him to, and he was on the doe. I expected him to be on, but he just came a different route for whatever reason, you know, maybe he knew what was there, but. I heard him make that sound and chase his lurkers off. And then the next day I shifted to observe the bed that he came from, um, if that were to be him. And I saw him go into cattails before daylight, bed and frag mites. And, it, you know, I didn't see his rack, but I was like, you know, it could be him. And then eventually he worked up and started pushing a doe and I could hear him grunting and stuff like that. And he was going to come right down my trail. The doe pulled him off and I I grunted and snort wheezed at him he turned to come right back at me and decided not to. He was within range there, but covered up in cattails. And he decided to head off the other direction. The doe actually turned and followed him. And this was like, this was like October 18th or 19th or somewhere in that range. So it was very early on. Sure. In the rut. So, um, yeah, I watched him go back to bed. And then the afternoon I watched him get up from that bed and head off. And I was like, I was like, I think it was him. Like but mm-hmm. I wasn't sure. And I wasn't going to be one of those guys. that just makes a bunch of assumptions. And so I got down from my spot and started heading out and like on the way out, got a cell cam notification, hundred yards from that bed of him exiting. So I was like, "Yep, yeah, that's the exact direction. I saw that deer go like same deer that was just grunting and watched at bed. Like that was him like, mm-hmm. dang it, <laughs> you know, again. <laughs> and so uh, the next day I pushed in really, really, really close and almost dangerous sit and it didn't happen that afternoon and i worried that i had bumped him and um i i um originally targeted him on on oaks and worried that when he when the oaks went out of phase he was going to bump off so i did a mid-season day scouting in like october 13th or something like that where i put out some extra cameras did a whole bunch of scouting on ranges that i thought he could shift to and um After I'd hit that really risky sit we just talked about, um, I thought that I'd pushed them off. So I let a day go by and um, it was a a very rainy day. There wasn't a lot of productive hunting going on. It was basically going to be downpouring by the time last light was coming. So it it wasn't really worth it for me to head out and, you know, potentially still disperse my scent everywhere. Mm -hmm. That level of rain, that fast rain that was very hard wasn't going to be enough to wash away my scent. So I was going to risk it. And then I just kept thinking like I busted him out, like he's going to shift. And so um, I went out, I believe it was the next day after that rain. And I went out actually to just like to just scout. And I went with my backpack and my bow and all my filming gear. But I left my tree stand at the truck and I, I went down that access dike and took a couple steps off and checked the trail camera. And there he was the day before 30 minutes. After shooting light, which this strip is around a hundred yards long. Um, So I know that like, by the time he hit that hundred yard log strip, he was in daylight from how slow this buck works. Right. So I literally got back on that dike, sprinted to my truck, grabbed my tree stand, sprinted back, slowed down and everything to be quiet and got set up in the closest possible position to him. And uh, then that whole occurrence with the guy walking with the headlamp happened. And so, from that sit, that relocation sit, to where I originally had multiple occurrences with him was like 600 to 650 yards. Okay, apart. got it. And so then after I bumped him that time, which was just horrendous, all that blowing and stuff, that was just two major disturbances within one week. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I was expecting him to do a drastic shift. I spent the next couple of days finding a bit of sign that I believe was him. Um, he was just barely tickling trees when he was rubbing. I actually got a picture of him doing it on camera but he left in like this, I mean, the size of a pin needle was all he did when he rubbed this tree. And mm-hmm. so I was like, well, and it was really low to the ground too. It was really odd. Uh, I think it was the nature of the tree it was rubbing, but I started getting on sign kind of like that in the direction that he ran when I put, when I pushed him. And so I was like, maybe he'll be in this area and you know, in two sits, it didn't happen, which is not a regular. And, um, I was like, all right, I got, I got to go to Ohio. pile. Like I, I'm not going to cut off my entire rotation to, uh, to relocate this deer this deer means the world to me but you know i i'm in it for the experience and i think ohio would be a fantastic experience so sure. i then left for ohio gotcha so is that
1: typically how you kind of decide okay if i just bumped this buck out of his bed here he ran that way is kind of the direction that he that he came or obviously you're in there you know for for weeks you know ahead of time months mm-hmm. even ahead of time you kind of know sort of the the entrance and exit routes that he may Mm -hmm. have, if he takes off, you know, one direction, do you kind of just through preseason scouting, have an idea of like, okay, he went back into here. I think I know where he's going or is it Mm -hmm. kind of, okay, shoot, I bumped him
2: out of here. I got to figure this out on the fly. So it's not always like that. Um, Mm -hmm. For instance, the first time I bumped him, um, the first time that I thought I had bumped him off of where I thought he was feeding on and stuff. um, He could have gone pretty much anywhere from that point. Um, there was a lot of areas for him to go to sure. and that's and that's based off of spring scouting and just how the train lines up there are certain areas that are impassable in marshes for for many reasons mm-hmm. um, and there are certain areas that you just can't hunt literally because of border like private public right. you know all the all these other things that that go on I don't just I don't want to get too much away but um, that, that's the nature of the second bump of why I went in that direction was he could have relocated to many areas that I couldn't hunt there. But in the direction he ran was fortunately in an area I could hunt, in an area that I had a feel for spring scouting and that I had seen sign that if a mature buck was bedding there, I knew where he was going to be. And it was like, he's either here or he's somewhere where I can't kill. And so, you know, I went that direction. That was the best guess I had. And I guess that's why I was okay with for leaving with Ohio too, is just because I knew that I wasn't really. Like I knew I would have had some kind of run in, or a little bit higher confidence after those two sits, and I and I wasn't getting it. And he either did something extremely drastic, um, going in that direction, or he hunt, he bumped temporarily to an area I couldn't hunt him. So, Fair. Um yeah, that was that, that was all I could do in that case, and and that's kind of the nature of it. I don't always assume that they're going to end up in that direction. Um, a lot of times, guys will see like I find it hilarious if people do this with like Mark's graves and stuff, but like. Deer will track you after you go in there, especially on pressured land in the preseason when humans aren't around all the time. I almost always when I set a camera on a scrape, I'll find a deer tracking me. I'll find a deer walking back through that scrape. It's a survey location, it's what they do. And um, I think it's hilarious sometimes when guys are like, Well, I had this buck 50 minutes behind me, like on this on this mock scrape. I'm like, Yeah, they do that whether you put out scent or not a lot of mm-hmm. the time, but but um, you know, they don't do that much in the season. But to that point, I don't always expect a buck to stay in that direction that he ran because sure. I think especially, you know, if I bump him at three yards and he got my scent, that's a little different. Right. But like if he thinks something's just kind of awry and it's in one of his favorite areas, he's probably going to circle back at night and figure out what's what went on. You know, sure. Right. And, and then and that will I think that makes him that gives him a, a better feel for decision. I've had him track me this book in particular actually his tracks he tracked me all the way back to um to i don't know how to put this up giving me the spot but he tracked me back to an access point mm-hmm. and it was like that book went a long way to figure out where i came from
0: really? you know, from
2: his yeah and i was like what i was like and i take pictures of tracks and, and put my mm-hmm. hand next to them or tape measure if i have it uh, next to it for scale so a track is like a trail camera picture for me. If, if I can get a picture of a track and I am familiar with that deer that made that track, I can basically, when I see that track next, it's as if I got a trail camera picture from there. Sure. Just a few, just an hour a day or whatever, how fresh it is before. Um, and so I was very familiar with this buck's track. And I was like, my God, that's him. Like that was him going all the way back to this access point just to figure out <laughs> what I was doing to target him. And actually, I had to change that access that I was using to get back on. Um, Really? Which, yeah, it helped a lot. Um, Actually, I think if I would have accessed from the second direction the the entire time, I probably would have had more success. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think he was doing a little bit of monitoring of that access. After that point, I think that he was like, all right, this is where danger is coming from. If I'm going to bet in this situation, I'm going to have some kind of sight or wind advantage on that direction. Um, And I, I put like two more sits to him after he tracked me out. And then after the other one, I found him tracking me out again. I was like, all right, it's over. I'm like I'm not, I'm not gonna access the direction. I'm like, he literally watched me come in here, watched me go out, and then follow me out. Like Holy this guy smokes. is just giving me the finger. Like yeah. It was it was bad. I was kind of salty, but uh, I got back on. So it was okay. dude, that
1: is wild. <laughs> I've never heard of Deer backtracking the hunter back to where he came from.
2: Yeah, and it's i just think it's out? a matter i think it's a matter of well i i do have it happen quite a bit especially you don't realize it sometimes when you're setting up sd cams because mm-hmm. it's like it, you're you're looking at thousands picture at a time and you don't kind of like always say oh that first picture is 50 minutes later and it's sometimes it's a doe or whatever like
0: right.
2: i had it happen with cell cameras this year quite a bit where like i was walking out and had deer back on that cell cam and i was like this huh. is weird like and, and you know, it happened a bit in Hill Country, but it happened a little bit more in these marshes. And I think it's because of how remote the locations are mm-hmm. and how abnormal it is for a human to be in there. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they don't necessarily smell human scent. But they smell that ground disturbance that you had. Right. And it's just, you know, it's not something they're they're used to in these remote locations. And so I just think he had this core that was not getting touched. And in years past, it wasn't getting touched. And all of a sudden there was this disturbance and he's like, what the heck? What's going on? You know, like, and so, you know, I don't think he's this, I don't think deer are like this super intelligent animal from a, from compared to a human, at least, you know, they're not creating cell phones or anything like that. But like, Mm -hmm. like, I think there's a really simple logic of, okay, what just followed me into this area that's so secure? Like you, you know, they use their nose, like we use our eyes. Like if you saw the old analogy, muddy boot prints walking down the sidewalk and into your house, you'd probably be like where the heck did that person come from? Like, like, why are there muddy prints in my bedroom right now? And you'd probably follow them. And you'd be like, oh, well, my back door is unlocked. Why would I do that? You'd probably lock your back door and make sure that no one's coming through. You might put a camera on it. Well, that's what the deer's doing. He's just, where did this danger come from? And why did it get into this area that's been so secure in the past? And I was in that first access doing something really creative, which is why I'm kind of making sure I don't mention exactly right, what right. feature he tracked me back to. But, but I was doing something extremely creative that I know for a fact, other guys weren't willing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, I I think that's what he was doing. I mean, he, I could be wrong, but it's not something that's been too irregular from what I've seen from just placing cameras in the past.
1: Right. I mean, just hearing you say it too, I'm like, duh, like that makes perfect sense. <laughs> like, why didn't I think of that? Why have more people not talked about this before? <laughs> like and I think that, it's
2: particularly with like hermit bucks, you know, like, area. like an older buck that loves his area. I mean, mm-hmm. I will see bucks in hill country just move. Like they don't care that they probably smell you initially where you're at and they're just gone, you know? Um, but I think that there are, you hear Dan talk about, there's actually like not as many places that they can bed. There's lots of betting features and stuff, mm-hmm. but there's not many places that they bet that they are truthfully away from people consistently year over year. And so just, and that's the nature of the pressure too. But you know, I think this was an area where I targeted him over and over and over again in this area and he was still there. And it took me doing that one really risky sit to bump him off. And then, you know, the next time I bumped him, it was anyone's guess where he was going to be. But I think he encountered my nighttime scent quite a bit and um, there were enough incentives for him to stay there, but eventually it became too much. And I luckily had prepared for that and figured out more Uh, By that point, so I
0: could get back on them. But unfortunately, that was very short lived, as you heard. Right, right. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Tacticam. Makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge, making user friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year. But the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with a sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm going to be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com and share your hunt with Tacticam.
1: Do you notice deer doing the same thing on heavily pressured public versus, you know, stuff that might not see as many feet or people out
2: there? They do a lot of the same things, but they okay. but there's this very distinct difference. Um, okay. They And it depends on terrain type. 100 yeah. percent like like if the cover is wide open and that limited cover like let's say hill country where there's just some thickets that line up with good betting features like some thickets are around and then there are some thickets that line up on a leeward side and there's some mm-hmm. thickets that are on a leeward side that are on a bench so it's like you have all these compounding factors right so the deer will be focused in those areas, but if you bump them off, it's a long way for them to get to safety essentially. Right. So if you go in and you tear apart one of those areas, they're probably going to move a little more drastically than mm-hmm. if they would in a marsh where there's a lot of bedding cover. Right. Um, Where in this area there's much higher pressure. So they're used to getting those bumps and I feel like they have better secondary options and, and, and they're going to move to some of that, Cause there's a lot of options. I think they're moving to those next options quite quickly, but you can just lose the deer in here too. So it's like, right. you know, it's hard to, I guess it's kind of hard to compare because they'll move to those second options, but that area that they love, I think is a little bit harder to push them out of in a marsh with high pressure than hill country with low pressure. I think they move pretty far in the hills um, because they can use site advantage and stuff like that too. Right. Um, But I don't think you're necessarily trapping them into a core area. I think once you put a lot of scent in there, they're more gone from hills. I don't know if that's they switch to a visual advantage or if it's like they can find that next thicket or they're willing to travel further because it's not nearly as hard of walking or what it is really. Um, But yeah, I feel like outside of the rut, like these deer have really core areas that they really trust and it takes a bit of disturbance to get them out of there. Um, but at the same time, they know how to deal with people because they've done it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's and a complex that, topic too. Yeah, there's a lot. I was I guess just gonna a lot say, <laughs> I could go in there.
1: I know. I was just gonna say that could be a whole episode in itself, right there. Um, right. So, anyways, we, we we're we're slowly getting to uh, this year's buck. But now, <laughs> going back to your season, you get to Ohio. Mm-hmm. What happens there?
2: I know you lose yeah, your
1: stabilizer so... <laughs> and have to.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was fun. Uh, yeah, so I got to Ohio and um, man, you know, I'm not gonna be one of those guys that sits on a podcast and says like, I deserve all this credit for, for this kill when in reality, like, I had a good resource in Jake and and there's a lot of things I had to do, right? I had to get up, I had to make sure I was doing the clean access. I had to do a lot of my own kind of scouting my way in and finding the right tree and the right setup. But Jake got me a large portion of the way there and that helped a lot and i was willing to take that advice in such a low density area that i I wasn't used to quite frankly and so you know preferably i had the vacation time where i'd go to ohio and scout the spring and then hunt those spots but i, I just didn't have that time and so i went there and um a lot of credit to jake you know he helped me out quite a bit and i bounced between spots and eventually learned that i needed to stick to consistent spots and that was a factor of the stage of the rut we were in and that that low deer density that deer were gonna repeat on spots. And um, eventually I got it done. And um, I just remember one time I was talking to Jake and and I go over this in my Wisconsin video, I was standing on a ridge top and we were talking about what we were gonna do that afternoon and what scouting we were gonna do, what spots we were thinking about going to. It was one of the few places I had signal and I had a uh, picture come in from a cell cam that I called Kingpin Bet. And it is from the video where I say, where I, I call it closing in on the kingpin. And um, that's why I call it that bed. I ended that video with to be continued cause I knew something was gonna happen to that spot this year. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd hunted that in the early season. And then around mid October, I was like, you know, I I had this timing wrong. So I'm gonna place the cell cam here and see if I, see if I can't get the timing down. And so I did that. And then this cell cam goes off while I'm in Ohio I'm on ridge top. I'm like, Jake, we got to stop for a second and stop talking for a second. I got to look at this picture and kind of see what's up. Cause when I get a deer on this camera at this time of year, like it's, it's going to be a big deer and called it. And sure enough, like showed it to Jake and he was even like, wow, like, that's a nice buck. You know? And, and I was like, damn, this is the 10 I ended up killing. But that was the first picture I ever got of him. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, I don't care. Like I got a 12 (laughs) point to chase back home, you know? So I go through a few more days. Um, and I had a really awesome kill come together, um, made a good shot. I actually saw the deer die on film. I wasn't certain of it. So I backed out. Jake and I looked at the footage, saw that he fell. We went back and recovered it and just, just had a blast him, me and Drew Emington, a good friend of both of ours, um, got to spend the night talking and taking pictures and dragging out together. And it it was just something I'll never forget. It was I was so thankful for that whole experience. Um and so like I said, after I killed that the next day after getting it all cleaned up, I was on my way home to Wisconsin and my buddy informed me that my number one had been killed. So now all of a sudden I'm I'm left scrambling. It's like, what do I do? And you no know, I had bigger bucks than the one I ended up killing on camera, but nothing that I had the intel on like that spot. There's nothing I had scouted as in-depth and had as confident of a feel for. I had all the pieces of the puzzle I wanted now that I had the timing down. And so I decided I was going to go after that buck. And um, on on November 6th, I, I went in for a sit, uh, a quick afternoon sit on a really high wind day. And um, I heard stuff moving back into bedding, but, but he didn't come out. And I was like, well, according to all these pictures I've been seeing, this little two-day rotation he's on, Uh, He had done two times in a row. I was hoping he'd repeat it a third time and this time would be right. I thought I was going to get him and he didn't come out. And so I was like, something's off. And so the next day I wake up for work and I'm on my way to work. And at like 5.30 in the morning, I get him on cell camera going to that bed. I'm like, great. Like I was just a few hours off really. And then I get him again at like 5.50. I get him at 7. I get him like 11. I get him all the way till like 5 something p.m., 7 p.m. All the way, like in and out, in and out of this bed, pushing off younger bucks and and kind of courting this dough on this bed. And I realized what I had misinterpreted this root ball of tamaracks, this like four or five tamaracks that were together. What I misinterpreted this root ball as was all season betting. What it really was was him and a doe betting there. And him sitting with that dough when the water's high, it was the only place that was room for two that had a relief from that water and they could bet. And I knew further back in these tamaracks there were other situations that lined up like that, but this was like the premier spot for it. Cause he had a big old blazed rub in it. Um, and it's funny. I even call in that video that he's a buck that has wide brow tines and mm-hmm. kind of smooth base, like not gnarly bases. Cause like he wasn't tearing that tree into Swiss cheese, but he made a really wide, you know, nice rub on it. Right. So I was like, you know, it, I was like, that's him, you know, that's him from last year. And, and, and so I had gone the next day seeing all these pictures and I was just wanted to scream out from work and do it, but I couldn't. Um, and eventually I knew that I had wasted one of my, not wasted, but I'd spent one of my sits. Now I'm at three left. And so I had Friday afternoon that I could hunt. And um, my plan was originally to go in there and see if I could sit that bed, but I wanted to scout and see if the sign actually lined up that way mm-hmm. to see if like I was just see if he was really in there, you know, cause I had seen some sign before that led me to believe he was in there. When I heard something get back up and walk away, I was wondering if, Hey, maybe I'd busted it or, or maybe it was relocated from a different bet. And so I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to scout my way in cause I haven't really been getting much pictures of him on the cell cam. Um, so I'm going to figure out what's going on here. And actually that morning I've gotten that dough going back to that bed. But nothing else followed. So I was like, I was like, man, like, I, I have a good hunch that he's not in. There. And so I scouted my way in and actually on the way in, I show this in the video. Um, I find a dough bed that just reeks of estrus, like mm-hmm. absolutely fresh, just stinky. Like, and, and it's funny, it smells nothing like tanks. It smells nothing <laughs> like any of those synthetics. Oh my gosh, it's not even close. Even the the real dopey, you know, mm-hmm. that stuff, does not smell like that at all. And like, it but it was like telltale it's like one of those things that you never have smelled before where you're like oh mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is right. and so i was like oh dang like this is perfect it's heading back in this direction i'm going to kind of track this doe and get to the nearest point that i think she's leading to and kind of getting the nearest setup to what i believe is the bedding that she'll hold up on so i followed this trail back and i got to the tree that um that i needed to set up in and i had never. I ended up being 250 yards, almost on the dial, 253 yards from this particular cell cam, from the nearest point that I had scouted, the nearest point that I got pictures of them, mm-hmm. and um, and I knew that with that bedding back in those tamaracks and the way that he had bedded in that previous situation, I kind of copied and pasted it to this one, and was like, all right, this is the setup where it's got to happen. And you know, honestly, I was so worried about the time running out. I was worried about if this sits over, I got two days left to hunt, like what I was going to do there, but I knew that I had a good chance of it happening because it's like when you got a doe within 50 yard, like confirmed doe bed within 50 yards of your setup that's in heat, like you can't help but feel a little confident, you know? Right. right. And so I knew <laughs> where she continued back into, and I just wanted her to come back up. And so um, I'm sitting in this super skinny tamarack, and, and, and the video will show this better than I can explain, but sitting in the skinny tamarack, and eventually I hear like a little bit of brush right back there and I hear deer stand up and I hear just this weird sound that I'd never heard before and and immediately like I was a little bit questioning but then I knew exactly what it was it was a deer drinking water and it just sounded like it's hard to hear in the video a bit but it was like this slurping noise and I was like what And I was like oh it's drinking water and I remember my first thought being oh they're not like a dog they don't lap up the water they yeah. suck it up like humans do and I was like wait, wait, wait. That means the deer's really close to me right now. (laughs) I was like, why am I interested in this way that the deer drink? Like the the buck is within 80 yards of me right now. So I was like, I was like, at least the doe is, you know, and and that was the doe he was on before. So I was like, oh gosh, like I got to I get ready. So I turn, I face that direction and just dead silence for like three minutes straight. And then eventually I just hear brush raking and I'm like, oh boy, like that's got to be, that's got to be something coming in. It's got to be, but, um, just at the absolute snail crawl of a pace, Mm -hmm. they're working super slow. And, um, eventually I see a little glimpse of antler, like 60 yards from me back in the brush. I captured a little bit of on film. And, um, right at the time I see that antler, I look back down and I see the doe is 30 yards from me coming into my first opening. And I'm like, oh no. And immediately she locks on. And so I make sure my bow cam is covering my face and I, I squint my eyes and stuff. And I try to just like break up as much as I can of that outline. But you know, this tree is so skinny. It's moving, swaying just a little bit with even the beat of my heart really. And, and she locked on. to me. she's doing these fake head bobs. It felt like it was 30 seconds. I don't know how long it really was, but she was just doing these fake head bobs where she'd go down and act like she was eating. And then she'd jerk her head back up or she'd look to the side but she'd keep her ears swiveled toward me and I just knew what she was doing so I I wasn't falling for it are you in a stand uh what sorry again are you in a stand or a saddle a stand I'm in a I'm in a but yeah I in that setup in particular I couldn't have really done a saddle because I was amongst um I was amongst those um those tamarack limbs yeah, and sure. so just just the way I had to be was very close to the trunk of the tree. Sure, um, saddles work in plenty of situations too. I'm mm-hmm. not like some anti saddle guy, but but um, you know, I happened to be in the in the B stand for this sit, and um, I uh, so I I needed to wait for that doe to like get behind some brush, yeah. and then the trail I anticipated her to come on was the one that I had cut off of on my entry, the one that led back to that other bed, which would go almost right underneath me and would go into some open cover and so she gets a little sketched out but eventually she works on further and then I just very slowly drew and I made sure that I I drew as early as I as I could while also being as late as I can I, I knew as early in the concept of when that buck was going to show up but as late as I could for when I thought she was going to be able to pick me out and so um, she clears that brush and comes into my 30 yard opening and You know, it's just standing there at at like around 28 yards and she's just standing, looking around, looking around, acting like a super cagey, like she's acting like a cagey buck. You know, Mm -hmm. she's, she's definitely seen some pressure and, um, and she's not even that old. She was like two and a half, three and a half years old. And, um, you know, she's just standing there looking around, looking around, smelling and everything she can. And then eventually she's flicking her tail and I see the buck start to come. Behind her, and he's just grunting like crazy. He's got these deep bellowing grunts, not nearly as deep as the twelve, but very deep. Mm-hmm. And um, and she starts to flick her tail, and she lowers it and starts walking off. She actually does a cut and kind of circles me at around twenty-five yards, and works back into cover a little bit. So at that point, I was like, "Well, maybe I can downdraw." And I had been holding for about a minute and fifteen seconds at this point, and um. And then with seeing his rack, I was like, all right, I can't, you know, I got to hold. And so he of course comes super slow stops and, and sniffs where she had stopped and is just slowly working in, grunting the whole time. And, um, yeah, he came in, I tried stopping him at a a steep quartering too. And he didn't hear me. He was stepping and grunting as I did that, which was kind of fortunate because he, he angled a little bit toward me unexpectedly instead Mm -hmm. of following directly down that doe trail. And, um, he took a few more steps. I stopped him and he was at a, a a fairly steep quartering tube, but not too bad. Um, and at that point I was at around two minutes and 20 seconds of hold time at, at full draw. And, you know, I, I took, you'll see this. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can see this in the video, but I remember seeing it on the GoPro. I took my eye off outside of the peep and looked at him and I confirmed his angle and I put my eye back in that peep, settled Mm -hmm. the pin and, and, you know, let a very clean, smooth shot go. And, um, immediately it sounded perfect and I, I turned back and reached back so I swivel my camera to try to get where he's going and I turn back and reach back for another arrow to my quiver and I turn around and I see him stop and I see him turn his head back and I'm like oh god like was that just a bad shot like what happened because he had followed right where that doe ran to and I, I was thinking that he didn't even know he was hit he was just looking for that doe and I'm looking and all of a sudden I see him sway to the right and I'm like oh my god and he sways (laughs) left and then he just crashes down to the right and i was like freaking out and i look in the cameras right on like it's right where he right where he fell so i got like this shot i got him running for 30 yards and from the time that the arrow enters into the time he's dead is 15 seconds and like got him falling on camera and i just dude i lost it i was like (laughs) From the lowest to lowest, to thinking like you know, number one buck's killed. I got to scrap together. How the heck I'm going to get a kill in these last few days? I had been what I thought was stupid at the time, and decided to go after the next biggest buck rather than just the highest likelihood one twenty five I could find. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought I was just the time was ticking away, man. It was wearing on me, and then I. In just a matter of minutes I had just realized a dream and chopped my biggest buck yet <laughs> and um dude i was stoked and, and i lost it and i called some friends i called my buddy cam who had been through a lot with me that season as you'll mm-hmm. see in the video and called in the uh called in the pallbearers to uh to help bring that buck out and it was one of the best experiences i've ever had and has ended up making making the best film i've ever had as well dude Man, I'm <laughs> I was
1: jacked up when I watched the video. I am like more jacked up just hearing <laughs> you say it firsthand than I was when I watched it. Man, dude, that is yeah. wild. I mean dude, dude, it was first off was crazy. Congrats again. Thank you. Secondly, dude, I had no idea. I from watching the film, you'd have no idea that you didn't realize the camera was on him the whole time, dude. I thought like yeah. you let off, grab that thing, and locked onto him immediately. Like
2: well, that's the editing <laughs> okay sure. so so I had right so I had so I was so worried you don't see this too but but the inri- initial angle I knew exactly it was to come out but mm-hmm. you can't zoom in too far because like you're gonna you're gonna screw things up for yourself um, and this is where a 4k camera really helps because you can crop and it looks like the same quality you know right and so unless you're cropping way you way down but, but um I was worried with that tamarack branch moving to my right that it was going to focus on that branch because it's an autofocus camera. Sure. And so I had to crop that angle in further than I wanted to and then tap on the screen a bunch of times to try to get it to lock focus on <laughs> where he was going to come out. And so I already knew I was too far zoomed in to like what I'd like doing normally. Mm-hmm. And so what, what it looks like is it looks like I shot and immediately have a hand on the camera. Well, that's just like all the editing I did. Like I said, <laughs> I put in a ridiculous amount of time into editing this. And um, basically I shot. The camera stays still. He exits out that branch, and right as he exits out that branch and into brush where you couldn't see him, even if the camera's pointed toward him, mm-hmm. I swivel the camera to, and he's really in reality he's in like the upper left third of the screen when okay. he falls, but with the editing he's dead center pretty dead much. Center. And Absolutely. so yeah, and so I I cropped it to be dead center. I cropped it to follow him as he's leaving frame. And I also did it to follow him into that corner of the screen so that he's like right on. But really it's what you need to kind of do when you're filming is I always tell people like, you'll know I'm passing on a deer if I'm moving the camera as it's approaching. Like I will have the camera on where it is, where I plan to kill it. And you won't see it for the first 20 yards that I'm seeing it, but you'll see it die. Like that's yeah. my goal. And so... You have to have it a little bit zoomed out in, in the area you plan and then anything after that is a is a crapshoot like it's it's if you can get some of it running away self-filming that's awesome sure um but like i said i had the gopro angle too and i had the, the the manual camera so i just made you just make a quick attempt is what i do is i make a quick attempt to get him on there and i worry about the ethics of like making sure he's dead and i right. have another shot ready next um because it's going to be a hell of a lot better video if he's on the ground after all that um, sure. than then watching him run away but um yeah, man. So that, that swivel just happened to be the perfect one. You know, I knew where I was pointing it, but fortunately he stopped right where he did and just died at frame. And it was it was so cool, man. Like and he just, died at what forty yards? Yeah, yeah. He was very close when he died. Abdomen I mean, I shot him at twenty. Long. I shot him at like twenty yards. And then he ran thirty on an angle. So like it it was, you know, it was very close that he died. Man. And um Yeah. And so, I mean, I had a clean pass through to like steep quartering to just behind the shoulder, exiting out the last rib, destroyed his lungs and just clean pass through buried into the grass and dirt on the other side. It was awesome. Just everything you could ask for lit up blood trail. Like not that I needed it, you know, but um, it was just everything you could ask for in the hunt. Like I just I felt so blessed. And and I look back and I think about all the kickers that could have ruined that season and um one of the things was my buddy sent me a that screenshot of a facebook post essentially that is how i learned that my target buck was dead mm-hmm. and the guy had gotten a massive amount of hate on the post for some reason uh, i don't i don't know exactly what it was cuz i didn't see the post itself but he took a screenshot of it and he went to check the comments to see what was going on and the post was deleted by the time he clicked the comments um really? so it had been posted for like 2 hours and it got a lot of feedback and then he went to check the comments and it said like this post is no longer available. So if he is like what? 10 minutes late to seeing that I'm chasing a ghost all season. Right. Yeah. And and if I have a little bit higher wind on the way in on that day, I had a, I was expecting to have a pretty high wind that day, but it was somewhat dead. Mm-hmm. Um. I might've said screw it and risked it going to the spot I had pictures of. But I was like, no, I, I gotta do some woodsmanship and not just, like rely on this, but I, I could have made that decision really easily. I could have decided not to go after this big buck and go after there was an eight I that is actually now dead. He got killed yesterday in muzzleloader. Um, but there was a really nice eight that I could have gone after that. I've been really happy to kill that. I had very consistently and I decided not to, it's like, there's all these like little decisions that would have completely changed the course of my season. Even if I would have killed that 12 too, like who, who knows if I would have got any good footage of them. Mm. I haven't been able to get good footage of them all year and I was right next to them many times. So it's like, I think this is the best way it could have turned out. Just like the lesson to persevere and to push your limits and then stick to targeting one deer for the first time I've ever done that is strictly one deer. Um, I just learned so much about how unique they can be and how some niche areas of their behavior applies across the board and, and what you learn about, like yourself, you know, you learn about what you're really in it for. Like if I was just in it to kill deer, I, I would have done something completely different. Right. You know, if I was in it for money or bragging rights or whatever, it'd just be so, that whole season would have played out so different. And, um, I just learned a lot about myself through that chase with that buck. And, um, you know, eventually it turned into a shorter chase for another deer, but I was very happy to have it work out the way it did absolutely man dude
1: that this whole conversation just gets me fired up like this <laughs> is that's just so sick so you mentioned they're chasing one specific deer is that something you think mm-hmm. you're going to try and do for years to come here or what what yeah. i guess can you take from this uh from the, from this season's hunt or hunts um that you're planning on applying to the future
2: mm-hmm so there are a lot of things that I learned uh, about during chasing one specific deer. And just to touch on some of the, cause I know you and I like to geek out about kind of like the, the tactics and stuff. Yeah. But um, just to touch on some of those things, like recognizing how much mud is like on their hooves when I'm getting them on camera, especially when they're close to like, like a lot of times we have canals here that are like three inches deep, but it's all muck and you could go to your chest and muck if you wanted to. Yeah. And um, like, I know they're not crossing that. Uh, There's certain things with uh, they're. Reading his behavior when I'm getting him on cell camera, how he has his ears pinned and he's chasing off smaller deer when he's finally showing up there, learning how much that deer dodges that cell camera and, and just like learning how they shift depending on food sources and pressure, learning that he wanted to track me out and find my, like there's so much cool stuff that I learned from this specific deer that I find it to be extremely valuable in a different way than bouncing between deers, deer in spots. Um, so that's just like, just some of the, the benefits. And and if you really wanted to just think about the dollars and cents of what I learned, that's kind of what it is. Um, and, and I could go on for a whole podcast about that, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I think that just the mentality shift has been drastic. Um, I think it was really challenging to pursue a deer that you're not getting on camera, like at all, and know that you could either be way off or way on. And and just that mental fortitude that it takes to decide to push on, whether you're sure or not. I think that's just such a a cool feeling. Like I had treated this chasing this buck that twelve, I had treated chasing him like like I I was getting ready for a conference wrestling match. Like I was in college. Like I like I was getting ready for some of the biggest opponents of my life. That's how I treated this. And and I don't get in that zone for anything. And it's rare. And it, it alters me physically. Like my whole day is different when I, when I feel like that, I like, it's, it's crazy that laser focus you get in, but I would like go to, instead of listening to like my normal, like, like hunting country rock and whatever on the way in, I would listen to classical music on the way into my hunts. Like I listened to like Time by Hans Zimmer and I listened to like the interstellar theme. I like modern classical musical. Yeah. Life. Yeah. I listened to like, I listen to like the Oppenheimer theme, the really? music. And like, yeah, dude, I, I would just like, and I would sit at night and just listen to this stuff and just think about like, what is this deer doing? And I, I actually have like, like a few pages of notes, but I would write notes and like, okay, this is what I think might be true. How can I test this to figure out if it's true? Like that whole theory with the muddy hooves took me forever to prove, Mm -hmm. but then I started getting deer that were bumped off of another area that would have muddy hooves when I crossed that camera. So I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, I was right. Like this deer's hooves could be getting cleared, but I'm right that he's not coming from these directions because he's not getting muddy hooves. Because now I know a deer came from that direction and he does have muddy hooves. So like there's those things I would just like reel over and over in my mind. And I knew the big adjustment I had to make, was I I would listen to that stuff to just calm me down. And I would think about like, I would play that music in my head on the way into my spots. And it was just to zone in when it came to that moment of that kill. Because I knew damn well, I was going to be in a position that I'd never ever faced before. I was going to be in something that I've never had such pressure in a moment. And the first time that I pictured myself shooting that deer, the first time I visualized it, my heart was racing and I was sitting on the couch and I was like, that's not okay. Like that is not what I can be like when this deer comes in. Cause I'm going to screw it up 10 out of 10 times. Like I was like, I need to have gone through this moment a thousand times before I ever actually do it. And I was like, I need to get in that wrestling mode where I'm just serious, ready to kick ass. Like nothing is going to stop me. I deserve this. I earned it. It's just time to execute. And so I would listen to that to just clear my mind of all the crap that happened that day. And to just get in that mode where I'm replaying the shot over and over again. And I knew that when it finally happened, I had been there a thousand times and I was just going to make it happen. And it was going to work. And and eventually I got like that. So that every time I had that deer come into range, I was cool, dude. I would never, it, it was as if a fawn was coming in. Like really? it was the exact, it was paying attention to detail, to the little minute details, like covering your face with your bow camp, squinting your eyes, having your release ready. I practice during the summer. I do this every year. I practice drawing until my arms are ready to give out. And then I practice on forgetting that pain, focusing and making a clean shot. And it's very hard to do. You screw up quite a bit. You lose a few arrows to start. Make sure you have a good backdrop for sure. But that execution, that repetition just brought me to a, a clean place. And you can imagine the thoughts coming through my head. When I'm at the crunch time of my season, I have two and a half minutes of draw on a deer. And I've been hearing him grunting and following this doe for minutes straight at full draw. Like, you, you have to be in it mentally. There's not room for buck fever. Because right. any little bit of extra shake on that, of what you already have, you're not going to be able to settle a pin and make an ethical shot. And I'm not taking a shot where I'm shaking like that. And so it really was all of that focus that led to this buck that I ended up killing, dying in 15 yards on the hardest yeah. shot I've ever made. You know, And it was the best shot I've ever made on a deer in the longest, most extraneous conditions. And it's because of that mental aspect of it, the focus. It was just like, you don't want to be cocky. I think being cocky is detrimental, but you have to be absolutely certain in your ability. And it can be tough at times, and especially in wrestling, because like you have to be so convinced you're going to win that the losses absolutely crush you. But at the same time, those wins don't always excite you that much because it's Mm. what you've earned. It's what you deserve in your mind at that. And so that's what it was like with, with hunting and these opportunities. It was like, I needed to be there. I needed to know that it was going to happen mentally or I was going to fail. Like, and I, and I'd seen it happen in wrestling a hundred times. So I knew that that like, this is what was necessary to succeed is to just get to that mental space.
1: Damn it, dude. You got me ready to run through a freaking wall right now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But that's why I want to chase deer like this now. It's like Jake kind of persuaded me to be like that. And, and, and I'd not done that in the past and I'd been thrilled and just buck fever as hell on every other deer i shot, you know, like I've been very excited. Right. But this was a different game, man, a specific deer, that excitement of chasing a specific deer. And I can only imagine what it's like for a full season. Like if I would have killed that 12, that is just like nothing else. And, and, you know, I'm sure I would have felt much better if I chased this one buck that I killed for more than two sets, but still like, man, just knowing that it was the specific deer doing the exact thing that you called him doing. And, and this case was cool because it was, I called him doing this months ago on a spring scouting video. Um, I called the pattern that he was on, like that was to have that happen, not from like a braggadocious perspective. I I don't care about like being right. And I don't want to say everyone's got to listen to me, but just from a self-fulfillment because like, that's, that's what I'm in it for. It's just like, Mm -hmm. it's just when you commit to something and you work extremely hard at it, like whether you realize that goal or not, you change the way you live to be better in every aspect. You you want to start eating right. You want to, you know, work out. You want to just pursue how good can I get? How good of a person right. can I be? You know, and that's what I really love about this because it's like what I had in wrestling, what I needed to do in wrestling to succeed, but in another application.
1: Yeah, man, absolutely. And you know, we were we were talking briefly before this about how, you know, you, you'd mentioned that you you wrestled your whole life all the way into college, and I I played mm-hmm. football. Uh, I know you did as well. You know, playing football mm-hmm. through you know youth sports all the way up. I played up into college as well, and then all of a sudden, it's you don't have that outlet, and you yep. need to fill it with something. And there as I think a lot of athletes, they, you know, we like we said earlier, they've got that extra gear that they need something that their mind they need one set goal, they need one Mm -hmm. set protocol that they can, you know, work on tweaking and perfecting so that they can, you know, get the mental reps like you're doing and you know, visualize that shot. Man, as you said that, I was like, dude, I did the same exact thing. I even said that to Josh on a previous episode about I had a on some private that I was hunting this year, um, we had just an absolute tank of a buck, like the biggest buck we'd ever seen out in our place. Um, and I, you know, was fired up, had some, you know, he was daylighting in October and I was like, mm. all right, he's like, it's freaking on. Next south wind, I am in there. Went outside that evening to, you know, shoot a few arrows to make sure everything was going well. I visualized that buck and just yeah. about sent one over the block. And I was like, whoa, oh. that's not okay. <laughs> we got to yeah. rein this in here. But Dude, you're you're absolutely right there, and I think there's. It, it's just it, it's fascinating how. I mean, I love what you're saying there about the classical music and like calming yourself down to like visual It's weird the process. I'll give you
2: that. It's weird. You know, I'm not gonna call <laughs> myself normal, but I don't want to be normal. You know, so dude, you don't have to. You don't have to blow wind up my skirt here. Like I know I'm a weird dude, but no, I and mean, I know a, a lot of guys was... can be like, "What the hell?" when they listen to that, but you know, it works for me, I guess. Hey, mine was uh,
1: mine was Pink Floyd's "Dark Side of the Moon" this season. That was yeah, that was my soundtrack. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, there just the mindset shift of getting out of the truck and having everything on. And here is my like I've I've got this buck's number. I am gunning for this buck. Um, yeah, yeah I, I imagine it translates specifically to wrestling when you've got you know say there's a All guy right. in your class who's you know at the top and you're, you know, you're going to face him at some point. So planning up until that point, so you can take him down, hopefully in a, in a big match and, you know, same with football yeah. and, you know, prepping for it's so
2: one-on-one game. in wrestling too. It's mm-hmm. like, if you lose, and this is why I was so crushed when I didn't kill that twelve. And I, I talked about it a little bit in my video, but when you lose, it's because you did not work as hard as the person across you. period. Yeah. End of story. It's like you are the same weight class, you guys had to do the same weight cut. You ate probably dang near the same thing. So you went through the same practices, the same school schedule. Like this, this guy is the same age as you. He's everything. He's you. But the difference is how hard did he work and how hard did you work? And when you lose, it's because you failed and no one else. It's not that player, that person, or that responsibility that someone else failed to deliver on. It's solely you. And it crushes you. There's a lot of people that I know that picked up wrestling in high school that like would would wrestle and they would just like cry after practice and we're like, why are you crying? And it's just, no one's, it's, it's rare to deal with that responsibility and know like, if you faced that guy across from you, you would have died. Like you would have died in hand-to-hand combat with him. Like yeah. there's no questions about it. And to know that you bear that responsibility is like something that you don't ever experience really in life, very few people do. Um, and there's certainly like, there's certainly that application in every sport Um, to a level, and and that's what it felt like when I failed on that deer. And I talk about at the end of my video what it means to have the buck of a lifetime. And and it it's hard because you almost have to watch the video twice because you you look at the end and you're really reading a couple of things that's going on. You're looking at um, you know the basically the the end scenes of the the deer and its recovery. And and I talk about what it means to have the buck of a lifetime. And and I. I say, you know, I spent this entire season chasing what I believed was the buck of a lifetime. I believe that that 12 was was the absolute buck of a lifetime. And when it got taken away from me, and I say this much better in the video, but when it got taken away from me, essentially, I thought I had just failed. I thought it, I was so depressed because I knew that 100% of what I had was not enough to get it done. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a lot to take on. And it was terrible. Um, well, you'll never but, know. Right. And so... The, the thing I realized is like when I had that talk with myself about stopping a WIMP was like, you're chasing the wrong thing right now. Like you're in it for this experience. And why are you so worked up over this deer? Like you can go out and have this experience and you can have a choice right now. Are you going to go out and get it done? or Are you going to sit here and cry? And I decided to go get it done and I ended up killing this deer and I was super excited about the deer, but man, filming the reaction of my buddies first walking up on it, my brother first walking up at it. Delivering it to my house and seeing my dad and my family react to it. That's what makes me tear up thinking about it. That's what makes me proud. And it wasn't until I came full circle and had a different deer. And it's like, they didn't care what deer I brought. They just wanted to see my hard work come to fruition, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's when I saw that their reaction and and that goal being realized and that dream being realized in their own eyes, the dreams they had developed for me that is what made it the buck of a lifetime. It, it was that I got to spend this amazing experience with my family and friends and have it all happen with them. There's very few times in my entire life will ever get to experience that. And so, you know, if you're in it for the right reasons, I believe, or I guess, you know, if you're in it for the same reasons I am, um, you know, it's just not, it's, it's interesting because that doesn't happen unless you chase a very strict stringent thing. But it's not dependent on you achieving that goal to realize your dreams. Right. Dude, you're going to give me chills. That's kind of deep here. for a deer hunting podcast. I no, man, but. I like it.
1: <laughs> I like it a lot, man. I don't think I could say it any better than that. Dude, that's that's <laughs> so true. And it, I feel like this year in particular, it seems like, you know, was your, if you're sitting in the tree stand and you're scrolling on Instagram or something, like mm, I feel mm-hmm. like there's been a lot of like more like, tugging at the heartstrings type yeah. content than there ever was before you know stuff about how like mm-hmm. this is the you no know, you never realize it's the last time you're gonna walk out of the woods with your old man or something like that. that's very it's, true it's one of those things god I, didn't, I hadn't been thinking about that but you're absolutely right like it's you know it, it's the people that you spend that time with in the woods and who you can share those experiences with that that really make it all that, that that really make hunting and really any outdoor pursuit all that it that it can be
2: you know it's never yeah. an individual win um absolutely dude that's phenomenal that's what i try to tie my videos into Is like i don't i want my channel to spread so that people can experience what essentially saved my life Now i don't know if i'm ready to tell that whole story on on a podcast quite yet mm-hmm. and maybe i'll just put it out on my channel initially but but in, in a literal way, hunting did, did save my life. And like, I want people to find the happiness and the obsession that I have with hunting to discover their purpose in life. And I think the more that I can spread my message, the more that that gets to happen. And the more I may potentially save someone's life in the way that mine was when I discovered hunting and really dove into it. And like, I, I want views and I want, comments. And I want people to have a great time and, and I want the channel to grow, but only if, if it can do that. And so I don't care to pander what, to what people want to see, you know, and, and I'll do that to an extent so it can start to grow. But I want people to find what I found in the sport and find their definition of it and love it. And so I try to make the focus of each of my very momentum, momentous videos or, or my very important videos of kills and stuff about something much more than a kill you know and and it's because that's not why I do this i i don't do this to kill big deer and have antlers on my walls and brag to people and talk about what i did in my heyday like so i want people to be able to grab onto something i want them to be very entertained and love the video and see the process that they like and and learn how to do it at the same time but i really want them to leave with something that can carry them through those struggles and and decide to keep doing it anyways absolutely man Absolutely. And not only
1: that, too, but I mean, you know, when they can figure out something that they're as passionate about as as we are and figure yeah. out, you know, kind of figure out their own style to it, you know, right. figure out how they hunt, figure out what works best for them, like their own kind of, uh, you know, meaning for it and everything. Dude, that's mm-hmm. you were you were hitting it right on the head, my friend. Like, Thanks, man. That's fine. It's a beautiful
2: thing. Like you could be obsessed with badminton and I'd support you all the way. Yeah, like right? as long as you're you're pouring your soul out into something, man. That's so I respect that so much, no matter what it is. And so, like, you know, just getting it's something beautiful about losing yourself into a passion mm-hmm. and discovering your dreams and achieving them. Like I wish that for everyone, you know, as long as it's not like world domination or something like that. <laughs> 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 Absolutely, man. Well, dude, so.
1: You mentioned you've got some hypotheses, um, you know, that you're always trying to test and everything. Are there any hypotheses that are in the works going into next season that you're, that you're chewing on or. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Is
1: it going to be kind of. And there's one that.
2: There's one that I recently. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. There's one that I recently talked about. Um, I think I might have discussed it with Josh. I don't know if it was on air or off air. Um, but and I don't want to be one of those guys that just like names a theory and like wants it to catch on or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, It's something I notice a lot in hill country and I'm starting to notice a little bit in marsh country, not maybe to the same extent, but um, yeah. it's this thing. And I just created a term for it just so I can classify it. But I call it like bird dogging It's actually when I was in football, we would do these drills. I was an old lineman and uh, we would do these drills where we step every single piece of our route, like a bird dog does when he's getting, when he's on a, bird and he's pointing, mm-hmm. you know, take one deliberate step, one deliberate yeah. step. We would stomp each one of those steps in our route, strong and deliberate so that when we came to game time to do it full speed, those would happen automatically because we yeah. had gone through deliberate quick motions. We call it making a conscious action in order, making a conscious effort to make a subconscious action. Yeah. So it becomes a habit, right? So the more I get experience with mature bucks, the more I believe that there's almost nothing they do randomly. And what I found in hill country, especially when I started timing up fall and drop dates, getting really familiar with doe bedding areas, setting cameras over doe bedding, exits in and out of doe bedding and buck bedding, Um, but specifically that focus on doe bedding. I found that bucks in the summers and into the early, early, early fall, usually before season, um, would walk the same routes that they do during rut. I would find them actually when that cover was super thick and they didn't have to rely on visual advantage, uh, when it was very green up, I would find them in one particular book um, that I can think of betting in the actual doe bedding it was kind of higher up on the tops. And I was like, what is he doing? Like, this is where I expect those to be. And I have multiple pictures of this particular buck and many other bucks doing this. And I thought it was really interesting and I went throughout that season. Um, and this was a new property and it had happen on a couple other properties, but I hadn't deployed cameras to the scale before. And so I went throughout that season. I had a gap that some guys talk about too, is like October 10th to 14th, kind of depending on your area. I had them checking scrapes outside of dough bedding. That was like the first mistakes they were kind of making in daylight. Hmm. Um, I know Clint Campbell has talked about this a lot. Um, and I've talked about it with a few other guys, but I, it's certainly true. Like, Kind of that like mid-October feel anywhere from the 10th to 18th like they make that first mistake in daylight like, kind of on a scrape usually monitoring dough bedding yeah so I thought that was interesting and then when it all came together it was like during that free route period I had the bucks in the same order pretty much if not exactly the same that they did in the summer walking these dough routes and checking this dough bedding. So like if you put a camera on this buck or put a camera, if you put a collar on this book, a tracking collar, you would think he's just so random because you would see him one day on one ridgetop near some doe bedding downwind of it. And the next day he would be a mile away and you'd be like, what, this buck Mm -hmm. is random. Like, what's he doing? But he's rotating between that doe bedding until he finds the first hot doe. And especially I see it happen with mature bucks that are familiar with the does and the deer in their area. And so I found that a deer had replicated this almost exactly, this this huge nine point I was after. is a big mainframe eight with a little extra uh, G4. And I found him do this in the exact same order with the exception of one bedding area, And I was like, well, my theory was going great until he didn't show up on the last one. And um, I went back there during the during December, kind of like secondary rut to pick up the camera and when I checked the camera card, he had fought a deer under that tree like five minutes before then. And I progressed to the yeah. point of that ridge where he would be bedding and he was sitting with a hot fawn. So it was a fawn in heat and I bumped them off of it and got pictures of him or, or saw him run away. And so what happened there is I think the mom relocated. He was actually on that fawn in the second rut when she didn't get bred the first rut. She went in the heat because those fawns carry the same... Esther estates of their mothers. And so what I think is what hap- what is happening in that early season, that summer kind of standpoint, is I think they're walking those routes, and I think they're betting in that doe betting, and they're getting familiar with with those does staying in there all year long. I think they're getting familiar with what does died, what does are still around, what fawns have come in because those fawns are holding the same heat dates as their mothers. Mm-hmm. And then he's cycling through in kind of the order, kind of like walking a well, I call it bird dogging. He's walking his route. And um he's walking that route. And I I don't think they do it constantly, but I think they do it for a little window, you know, like they would yeah. during the route, like a week or two window. And um, and I saw him cycle through in that summer the same way. And and it was cool because I was on, you'll see this from my last season videos. I was on Bucks October 18th, full out grunting and chasing. Like October 20th, full out grunting and chasing, like it was November first, right. like it was peak route. And it was just that mature buck on the first doe he knew was going to come into heat cuz he mm-hmm. has experience all year and he walked this route doing that. And you know, there might not be some crazy validity to this theory, I guess, but it's definitely what I saw in this case. Right. Because when you have multiple bucks doing this in multiple ridge systems like doing almost the exact same order and getting on the does the first day they're coming into heat, like I just I, that's just way too much of a correlation for me to ignore. Right, and right. the whole reason I had actually set cameras in this area is because of the blown up sign in them, but I believed it was on doe bedding and I wanted to get when those fawns were coming into heat. So I set them out early, was trying to catch those fawns being dropped in like April, May. Okay. And sure. So, and so that's when I was actually getting the pictures of these fawns and I would date it back. But then when I left those cameras in those locations, I saw the bucks repeating that pattern when I picked them up after the season. No kidding. It was crazy, man. I, I thought it was kind of stupid or insane for like trying to get all these big correlations. Because something that drives me nuts is like when I hear guys saying like, oh, I know exactly where that buck is all the time. I know where he's betting all the time. I know what direction he's traveling, all that stuff. And it's like if that that's what that buck is doing. You know, it's like so many times I see them like I rarely if ever get them doing the exact same thing two days in a row or betting in the same place two days in a row. So, so rare, especially mature bucks. And we're, when we're strictly talking about mature bucks here, right? It's just so rare. And so when they say that over and over again, it bothers me. And that's why I kind of have this notion that I test these theories over and over again, right? But it happened quite a bit in Hill Country. Um, I had two solid years of data where I could have it happening in Hill Country. And I, I just haven't looked back far enough to maybe recognize it happening again. Um, but I had it happen a little bit in these marshes. I just find that when they finally get to a doe, she's less likely to make a giant push, like run 500 yards down a ridge point um, in the, in the marsh, like where right. she's ripping through cattails. Yeah. She more holds up in an area where she's defensible and she's not going to get boogered as much. And then that doe kind of courts her there and defends her in that situation is what I've seen in the marsh, which is what I think was happening with the buck I was on. I think, um, I think he found that doe in an area that he could hold her, and and just defended that local point rather oh. than then bouncing to wherever that doe went or bouncing to a new dough bedding area, and all that. Sure, huh? I like that theory. Yeah, I, like I mean, again, that, that, in the situation I'm in, it worked out. I know yeah. I have a lot of friends that have said it worked. I talked to Andy May about it a little bit, the Mobile Hunters Expo in Michigan this summer, and he said it was really interesting and that he'd seen things like that, but hadn't paid much attention to it. Garrett Prawl said he had seen stuff like that. I talked to Johnny Stewart and a few other guys and they were saying that, like, yeah, like that makes, that makes sense. And it's weird how those bucks, I mean, how many times you get a buck one day in the summer and you're like, well, where'd he go? And then you get him back again during the rut. Or you get him one day in mid October and you're like, why is this buck here? And then you get him back again during the rut. Like it's, it's I don't know. It, it kind of puts a little bit of method to that madness. And I just don't think mature bucks do something for no reason. Right. 90% of the time. You know? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sometimes it's a little sporadic, but but you know. Yeah. That's you know, there's there's some
1: you know additional factor that's causing them to do that sporadic thing. Again, it's it's yeah. not without totally without reason, at least. No, I mean mm-hmm. I'm just trying to reflect here on on my season. I, I think I definitely I definitely saw similar stuff happen like that, especially in that mm-hmm. mid, you know, like October 18th, I think October like 21st was maybe my first uh mm-hmm. sit out on out on our private that I was hunting. And yeah, I mean, dude, I was, I had a terrible wind for any stand. So it was more just get mm. up in the tree somewhere that, you know, you're not going to screw anything up and just watch. But dude, I saw some of the most aggressive, you know, buck activity right on those hunts and stuff in those areas that, yeah, come November, it's it's game on like there's always right. deer running through there. So no I, I I mean props to you for putting together that correlation. Holy smokes! And, and
2: the reason I kind of can is because I make like i I'm, I'm kind of a data nut, which I get this from engineering, but I have I was like an say, Excel how spreadsheet. Do you track your data. Yeah. So I have an Excel spreadsheet and I'm looking to make this a little bit more intuitive, but um it I can basically take Wonderground's um historical data. Mm-hmm. and i can copy and paste it I keep the formatting underground so it's in the same table format and i insert it into days that i've had mature bucks on camera and it tracks like what deer it was so, like i enter this manually, enter in what deer it was so i have like a number i don't name all you know? mm-hmm. i just have a number of the deer that it was like deer number 42 or whatever and um have that i have when he showed up i enter in i have um was it a repeat occurrence did he show up on another camera was he with a bachelor group like did he sh- like was he showing up recently all that stuff and then it takes that takes the time frame that he was in there and then what this calculator does it takes all the information and it says okay was this a, this occurrence happened on a year that was either dry or wetter than normal like it compares everything to the, the yearly average and the daily was there a wind switch um, what was the wind direction what was the wind speed what was the temperature was it hotter than normal was it cooler than normal was there precipitation was it abnormally wet that year was it was the pressure high or low what was the pressure doing when he was sighted like all those things how close was it to dark how close was it to shooting time like what direction was he traveling um what's the typical wind rose for that area like all that stuff and so what it does is there's a bit of data on entry on the front end that's pretty manual that I want to get rid of because it's difficult to do. I would like to have it automatically pull from the website, but um, there's that on the front end, but then afterward it reveals all those patterns and you could see them in a pie chart or a graph or whatever if you wanted to. And so it basically takes all those things that you would have to pour over these pictures for and you would have to look and look and look and look into it and it makes those correlations obvious. It just shows you like, oh, this buck is always showing up when the south wind switches. Like this buck is always on this travel corridor. He's always exiting his bedding in this direction in this seven day period of the year. Or he's doing it, you know, when right after a rain, he's always checking the scrape or whatever. And so I found I was like, this is so weird that I'm getting this buck in this gap of days and then the same buck in this gap of days. And like, you know, I I kept finding that they were showing up down on this. Place that was downwind to doe bedding, like, like, a few months after they'd showed up in the summer, and I had multiple different bucks doing that, and then I had them repeat in you know separate locations. We talked about that one mile bounce kind of thing. It, it could be yeah. two hundred yards, it could be a mile, it could be freaking three miles, whatever. Like they made drastic bounces, but they were doing them almost day to day, and it was like this is just so strikingly similar mm-hmm. to what I was seeing. In, in the preseason and it's happening across multiple deer it was like just made it much more obvious right you know it, it would be much harder if I was just looking at those pictures and like oh what date is this what date is that but the fact that I have all that stuff entered in and then the the correlations are shown to me right away helped so much right yeah dude holy smokes I mean that
1: <laughs> first thing I'm thinking here is like you need to figure out a way that you can sell all that excel formatting <laughs> and that whole that whole spreadsheet layout yeah. and uh i know a lot of hunters who would be paying good money for that that's
2: <laughs> that's awesome yeah, no, no one getting the ideas about it now no, no. <laughs> um yeah no. And, no it's a tough it's a tough thing to do i think one of the big gaps is that whether underground is not always near your location yeah. they take it from airports a lot of the time so so that's a bit of a downfall. But one of the things I found is that when the weather, I might have the weather in the location they're taking it from being a west wind and the spot I'm in being a north wind. But it's yeah. almost always whenever that's west, this one's north. And, you know, it's always like the the wind directions correlate with each other. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I can read the weather in that location to get assumptions about the spot I'm hunting. But uh, that's one of the limitations that would be a big jump for me. And then the coding obviously sucks. But. yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, man, we've been going for
1: I think like an hour and a half here. I don't I know you've got another record uh or episode you gotta record uh here in a little bit, but uh before we go, what are the plans here going into the uh postseason or between now and now and uh next fall? Gonna be pounding the ice or Grass and some turkeys or is it data collection season or data organization oh. season? What's uh what's on the docket?
2: We're so I, I to, can't wait
1: to come back. So
2: yeah, I cannot wait to get back in Scout. Yeah. Yeah, I cannot wait to get back in Scout, honestly. I'm so excited yeah. for that to like just learn more. Um, I think what's gonna happen here is I we had to stall in Wisconsin, unfortunately. So we had early ice, which was gonna be cool. That was gonna be great to just moving the marshes fast right. or go ice fishing because I I love ice fishing. I live right by the lake uh, where I'm at. But um, yeah, so unfortunately we had that thaw. So what I think I'm going to do is do a lot of pulling some of that data. I might go grab some more cameras and, and try to get those, those patterns hammered for next season. And then um, I'm going to phase and do a little bit, maybe do a little bit of ice fishing uh, just while there's snow on because it's a little bit harder to see that sign with snow on sure once i have all those cameras picked up um I'll, I'll work on that data do a little bit of ice fishing and then um i'm, I'm gonna get back out in those woods and then marshes like crazy like i'm just awesome. gonna scout my ass off and usually what turkey season is for me is like my first season i go pretty pretty hardcore until i get one um and then if I have any other tags, it's just opportunity to scout with a gun in my hand and yep. a tag in my pocket. <laughs> so it's like I just obsessed with scouting, and then I'll just wear blaze orange when I go scout during turkey season sure. and try not to mess up anyone's spots. Like you know, I'm in marshes, so it's not like I'm like always around turkey hunters, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, man, I'm I'm just I'm just ate up with this, this deer hunting stuff, <laughs> and I, I I can't get away from it, and I don't ever want to. So that's going to be my life for a long time here. Absolutely, man. I love it.
1: Awesome, man. Well, before we go, uh, one more time, I mean, first off, like, thank you so much for, for joining in on this podcast. Anytime. I mean, this was phenomenal before we go, uh, where can folks get a hold of you? If they want to watch these hunts go down, um, and
2: see some of your other content. Yeah, man. And first, anytime I love being on the show. I love you and Josh. You guys are great guys too. It's always, always a great conversation, but, um, yeah, as far as finding my stuff, um, the wild calling on YouTube, the wild calling on Facebook, and uh wild calling outdoors on Instagram. Uh you can shoot me a DM or if you comment on any of my videos, I make a point to reply and read everything, you know. So if you guys have a question, shoot it out to me. If you wanna call me out on some BS, feel free. Uh if you say you saw the same thing, I'd love to hear that too. So, um, yeah, i What just makes it the world a difference to me is getting those messages occasionally and hearing that it helps somehow. So,
0: awesome, man. Well, you're killing it. Keep up the good work, buddy. (laughs) Thanks, man. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. While you're at it, if you could leave me a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. You can also follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman or at Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics, guests, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show. And if you're looking for more great outdoor content, check out the sportsman's Empire.com, where you'll find my other podcast, the how to hunt deer podcast, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts. And until next time, make sure you make the time to get outside and enjoy the incredible natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.